Hello. <laughs> Pastor Wenjie, thank you so much for that introduction. It was way more than I deserved. I didn't have any self-awareness when I was that age working with uh, all the pastors in the New England area, but I have a lot more self-awareness now, and I realize in retrospect that I was the weird one in that bunch. <laughs> I try my best, but uh, you know, I understand now. It was a miracle I actually got married later on in my life. But <laughs> here I am today by the grace of God, so thank you so much for having me. Um, I got to say, uh, you know, Pastor Wenjay, I'm sure you guys know, but he and his wife, Lisa, they started something called the Rise Youth Ministry in the New England area. Uh, but I don't know if you know, that ministry actually ministered to um, about like four or five states, the New England area and the tri-state area combined. And churches from all over would send kids, uh, their youth group kids, to this retreat. And we'd have some, some uh, summers, I think we had like upwards of 350, maybe pushing 400 kids uh, at these retreats. And I never really had, really had a chance to express to them how thankful I was for that uh, ministry uh, because it was foundational in the development of some of our kids' spiritual lives. It changed them radically. And I was so grateful and thankful for that ministry. It was not only a summer youth uh, retreat. It was also a missions ministry as well. So they would organize mission trips combining kids from all these different churches. Uh, in that area. It was an amazing thing uh, and, and a wonderful time. I have fond memories, so I'm, I'm thankful for their leadership. Thankful for you guys for inviting me to uh, this uh, wonderful retreat. Um, I haven't been in back in the sort of Korean-American uh, second-generation adult context for about a year now. Uh, I'm working as a part-time children's pastor uh, at a church in California. Um, it was sort of that one area of ministry I'd never experienced, and I really wanted to take time to understand the heart of children uh, and work with them. And, you know, it was weird, though, because when I went into an interview, um, going from, you know, adult ministry to part-time children's ministry, fourth, fourth fifth, and sixth graders, the, one of the first questions the interviewee, the children's director asked me was, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> she kind of looked at my history, and then she asked me the question again. And I, I kind of got the picture. Uh, she didn't expect someone like me in children's ministry. Um, and she, I think she suspected that maybe something had happened to me in my previous you know, ministry. I, I got sort of kicked out or something. So I'm, I'm sort of here across country in a different ministry. So she wanted some you know, references from my previous church and all this stuff. And uh, it, it kind of spoke to me about the, the need for like really vibrant children's ministry. Uh, a need for full-time uh, pastors to commit their, to have a lifelong vision for children uh, and to raise that uh, side of the church up. So, yeah, anyway, that, that's a little, little bit about me. Um, I also got to meet some of your other pastors today. Uh, I had a really long drive with um, uh, Pastor Key and really, you know, Pastor Key, and we got to know him really well. Um, he is, you know, I, I feel like we're sort of kindred spirits in a way. And uh, we had, I think, I think a great, I think a great conversation. <laughs> you can ask him later what his opinion is, uh, but you know, a great conversation. It was really good to get to know him. And I think I met Pastor Patty too. Uh, I don't know where she is, but uh, briefly as well. And um, turns out that I know the wife of one of your elders, Elder Charlie. Um, he, his wife, and I went to college together. Jun uh, Han uh, was a year older than me in college. And uh, so I feel like I'm coming home, <laughs> kind of in a way, uh, you know, just the familiarity with, with, uh, with your church. I have admired you guys from afar, by the way, even as I was doing ministry in the city. I know about your multi, um, 
multi-leadership model, your team ministry model. And it's an amazing thing um, that you guys do that. And I've heard so many, many good things about um, New Mercy. So I'm just excited to be here and to be able to share with you guys and walk this uh, journey uh, together. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me uh, today and uh, for, this, uh, for the duration of this retreat. By the way, I mean, I've never been to a retreat like this in such a place as this. I came here to sort of serve you guys, but I feel like I'm going on a retreat. So as I went back to my hotel room earlier today, I thought to myself, how can I make myself next year's speaker too? <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, you guys are really lucky. And uh, what you guys can do together in this, in this way is, is amazing. So thank you for that experience too. All right. Sorry for that long-winded introduction. Um, let me get into uh, sort of the, the meat of what we're going to be talking about the next uh, few days. Um, I've given a lot, a lot of thought to your theme for the year, uh, which was uh, Here I Am, right? Living Out God's Call. And I really want to ex- organize these next four messages along that theme, exploring this idea of God's call through four different calling stories in the Bible, all from the Gospels. So tonight, uh, we're going to begin by first talking about the love of God. And before we can hear God's call for our lives, I believe we need to renew constantly, right, our understanding of the gospel of grace, how we're called to be forgiven and loved by God. And we're going to see this story, this theme, through the calling of the Samaritan woman at the well. Tomorrow morning, we're going to talk about communing with Christ. That's going to be the theme. And I believe, again, before we hear God's call in our lives to serve, uh, not only do we need to know God's love for us and be reminded of that, but we also need first to heed his call to commune with him to learn how to commune with him on a daily basis and to go deep. And so uh, we're going to talk about uh, communion through the story of Christ's uh, transfiguration for that tomorrow morning. And I I believe his transfiguration is part and parcel with his calling, right? So we're going to look at what Christ's call was uh, on earth. And then tomorrow evening, we're going to address the topic of calling, uh, what is calling, and how does it work in our lives head on. And we're going to talk about the nature of God's calling, how God's call turns our lives upside down, redefines our purpose, and calls us to surrender and follow him. And we're going to see this unfold through the story of the calling of Simon Peter. And finally, on Sunday morning, we'll talk about three ways we as Christians can respond uh, to God's calling. And we'll do this through the calling of the three disciples story. Uh, That's going to be, I think, kind of an interesting one, too, uh, that shows sort of three ways that disciples re- react to Jesus and what that has to say for us. So that's the overview for our messages. Uh, after each message, I hope we can ex- engage in some extended time of prayer, uh, maybe 10, 15, even 20 minutes of just praying through some of these things and give us an opportunity to kind of draw close to God uh, ourselves. Um, I think that's what a retreat is for, and it's not often we can get away from work and family in this way. So I think that'll be vital for us. All right. So tonight, then, I thought we might begin by renewing our understanding of the gospel of grace, how we're called to be loved by God before we even begin thinking about uh, serving him. And we'll take a look through the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, the passage is a bit long, so if you want to follow along with me, you can. Uh, But I'm looking at the New American Standard Version of the Bible, and we're going to start in John chapter 4, verse 3. So kind of bear with me. It's a little bit of a long passage. It goes like this. He, Jesus, left Judea and went away away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have, in other words, the one whom she's now living with, is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. I'm skipping to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so as we look at the story of the Samaritan woman at the well through the theme of Understanding the love of God again, the grace of God. I'm going to lay out this theme according to these three points tonight. First, Jesus knows the brokenness of our lives, but instead of judging us, he reaches out to us first in grace. Jesus knows the brokenness of our lives already, but instead of judging us, he reaches out to us in grace. Second, Jesus meets our deepest need for love and acceptance. And third, the grace of Jesus Christ restores our souls. So first, 
Jesus knows the brokenness of our lives, but instead of judging us, he reaches out to us in grace first. Right? So in this story, along comes this Samaritan woman to draw water from a well, and Jesus does what might seem to us an innocent act, but was, by the standards of that time and place, unthinkable. He asks her for a drink. Now, there are some pretty strong reasons why Jesus shouldn't have been speaking with her at all. Reason A, she was a Samaritan. Now, if you're not quite familiar with the origin of the Samaritans, super quick history lesson here. Way back when, during the time of the Jewish uh, kings and queens, uh, in the time of Solomon, after Solomon passed away, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And the southern kingdom comprised two tribes of the 12 tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the rest of the 10 tribes comprised the northern kingdom, right? And, you know, if you read the Old Testament, the northern kingdom had a all the kings were evil in, uh, in Israel, but in the kingdom of Judah, they had you know, some good kings and some bad kings. Well, around the 8th century BC, that northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrian army. And when armies fought back in that day, they didn't just destroy you. They went in there and killed as many people as they could, and they took the rest of the people and deported them to their own land. That was to break the people's tie to the land so that when they're caught in another land, their children begin to speak the language of the, uh, of the oppressors, right? And pretty soon, that people loses their cultural heritage. And they, 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 they commit cultural genocide, in essence, and wipe a people off the face of the planet. That's what they did. So that's what they did to the northern kingdom. However, a few um, remnants of people remain in that land. They escaped captivity. And they intermarried with the other uh, people surrounding uh, Israel, like the Canaanites, Amorites, and those descendants of that remnant were called the Samaritans. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom of Judah, they too were destroyed in the 7th century BC by the Babylonians, right? And they were also taken into captivity. But unlike the uh, Israelite kingdom, the, the Judean kingdom, they had the faith to preserve their bloodlines even while they were in captivity in Babylon. They intermarried only with other uh, Israelites, right? And in the time of Cyrus the Great, uh, during the Medo-Persian uh, kingdom, they were released from captivity and returned to the land in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and ultimately the temple and the other homes. Those, uh, the kingdom of Judah is where we get the word Jewish from, right? Because in uh, Greek, it's Judaios, uh, and in Korean, it's Judean. So that sounds like Judah. That's where we get the term Jewish. So when we call someone today Jewish and the Jewish religion or Judaism, we're actually referring to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, which maintained its bloodline and its you know, religious spirit returning back to the land. So if you ask, well, what happened to the other 10 tribes of the north? Apart from the Samaritans, whose blood was mixed, um, they are kind of called the ten lost tribes of Israel. No one really knows where they went you know, after they were t- taken into captivity. The point of this, then, is that this woman was a Samaritan. She was a mudblood, in Harry Potter terms. And Jesus was a pureblood. And purebloods did not hang out with mudbloods, right? There was this cultural animosity. And even the Samaritan woman said, how can you, being a Jew, talk to me as Samaritan, Right? She, she understood what was going on here and why Jesus should not have been speaking with her. I, you know, I mean, a number of us can you know, come from a generation where we can understand this, right? Our parents are, were sort of old school. And for a lot of us, when we were seeking a spouse, we knew what they would have said if we were to bring a non-Korean home, right? Especially if they were white or, like, God forbid, if they were like an African-American person, right? 
our parents would have a heart attack. And I, after I got married, I actually asked my mom, Mom, what would you have done if I had married a non-Korean? Like, what if I married a Chinese person? She's like, oh, maybe. Right? It's all, all in the Korean, but oh, maybe. What about like Japanese? What? Right? She, she knows the history. I was like, okay, well, what about like white or black? What would you have done? And she kind of, you know, was kind of laughing, kind of jokingly. Ha, ha, ha. I would have disowned you. I would have cut you out of my will. <laughs> That's what she said, right? And, uh, you know, I kind of thought in that moment, yeah, I kind of thought in my head, well, I was about to say, you know, Mom, actually, you don't work, so it's technically not your money. It's my, your dad, my dad's money. But I wanted to live, so I didn't actually say that out loud, right? We know our parents' generation. They were like that. We get it. So when we see this kind of situation, I get exactly what was going on here between the Jews and the Samaritans and why in her mind, what was Jesus doing? And Jesus was a known rabbi. What was a respected rabbi doing talking to Samaritan? It was that shocking. Yet Jesus broke through that barrier and reached out to a Samaritan. Right? That's reason A. Reason B, why Jesus shouldn't have been speaking with her, is that she was a woman. And for a man to be seen alone with a woman was not considered proper in that time and place. That's why in verse 27, the disciples were amazed that he'd been speaking with her. This is the Middle East. Think of the cultures of countries such as Saudi Arabia or Iran. Women have to cover themselves entirely so their skin isn't showing. They can't just talk to random men, and neither can men start random conversations with women on the street. In fact, according to one author, back in those days, many a Jewish man started the day with a prayer to God, expressing thanks that he was neither a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. One scholar writes that a Hebrew man did not talk with women in the street, not even with his mother, sister, daughter, or wife. Another author wrote that, according to the most liberal view of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, a Hebrew husband of that time could divorce his wife if she was found familiarly talking with men, just kind of talking with them as if they were kind of somewhat friends. One scholar even tells of a segment of the Pharisees known as the bleeding and bruised Pharisees, so-called because when they saw a woman approaching, they would close their eyes. Hence, they were running into things constantly. Now, we might think this is crazy, but if you think about it, it isn't so hard for us in the West to understand. Jesus met this woman at a well for a drink. That was like the local watering hole. Today, where do folks get a drink? At a bar, right? So imagine Jesus going up to a woman alone in a bar and saying, what up, girl? You want to buy me a drink? We'd be judging Jesus too, right? If I saw that. Yet Jesus broke that gender barrier and reached out to women. Wasn't done. He did it. Reason C, and perhaps the strongest reason Jesus should not have been speaking with this particular woman was her broken life. There's a reason why in our passage, this woman comes to draw water from the well at the sixth hour, according to verse six, which is around 12 noon our time. That is the hottest hour of the day. All the other women drew water either in the morning or evening during the cooler hours. In other words, she came to draw water alone. Why? Because everyone knew the kind of life she was living. She'd had five husbands already, and the man she was living with now wasn't her husband. She might as well have had a scarlet letter A tattooed on her forehead. She was a social outcast, completely shunned. Can you imagine, then, the sheer load of guilt that, uh, and shame and pain that she was carrying? She had no true friends, obviously couldn't trust any of the men in her life, in and out of relationships, yet somehow still all alone. 
You know, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes I would say we might feel the same way, right, in our lives. We try so hard to find acceptance, to fit in, to get along, to make it work, but we're not sure if it really will. There are things in our lives or our family's lives we've got to hide, things that bring us shame, and no one can know. Not only do we condemn ourselves, we condemn others as well. I think humans are the funniest creatures in this way. Our flaws or struggles could be staring us in the face, but we think, at least I'm not as bad as the next person, right? At least I'm not as bad as the person across from me. They're a complete wreck, but me, I'm medium. In fact, just for the sake of it, let's turn to the person next to you, right? Turn to the person next to you, and if it's your spouse, even better, and say, honey, oh, and don't, if it's not your spouse, don't say honey, but... You're going to say, honey, I'm just as much a sinner as you are. Why don't you go ahead and say that to the person next to you? How do you feel to say that? When I thought about saying that to my wife, I thought I would do it in the context of if I were listening to a sermon and the pastor made us do it. <laughs> but, yeah, it, you know, we're, we're just as much a sinner as the next person, right? It's, it's, this, is, this is the gospel of grace. The Samaritan woman was the same. Though we might think she has nothing to boast about, you notice, of all people, she still took pride in her ethnic heritage. Now, Jesus has her cornered, right? You're in a relationship outside of marriage. I know. How does she respond? You Jews worship here, but we Samaritans worship there, i.e., I may be a sinner, but at least I've got my heritage to fall back on. In that way, I'm still good. I'm still part of the good people. It's like those Korean guys sometimes you see in Cape Town who, like, get drunk, right? foul mouth, cursing their own people, getting to fights. But when the Olympics or World Cup comes around, all of a sudden it's go Korea, right? We're the good guys. I'm still Korean. I'm still one of the good guys. At least we never invaded any other country in our 5,000-year history. Now, the truth of the matter is, none of us can do anything to earn God's favor because we're going to keep failing. And the only way out of that cycle is to admit, is to go to Jesus and say, no, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. That's why God always reaches out first to save us by grace. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with, up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the midst of the Samaritan woman's shame and guilt, through all of her outward posturing, trying to claim some moral high ground with Jesus, Jesus still did the unthinkable. He reached out to her first through a sheer act of grace, broke through all the racism, the sexism of that time, and looked past her sinful lifestyle in order to do one thing to satisfy a thirsty soul and to give her the kind of water that never dries out, the kind of water that meets her deepest need. And what was her deepest need? Well, number two, Jesus meets our deepest need for love and acceptance. Now, the way the Bible conveys this truth is absolutely wonderful. It all hinges on who Jesus is, his identity. The Samaritan woman begins this conversation not really knowing who Jesus is, right? At first, she thinks he's just a Jewish man, a teacher. But when Jesus points out in verse 18 that she had five husbands and is now living with a man outside of marriage, she thinks he's a prophet. They've never met, right? So how does he know all this about her? But look what happens next. 
Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She knows the prophecy about a coming Savior, and Jesus identifies himself as that Savior. I who speak to you am he. Except that's not what the original Greek says. The New Testament originally was written in Greek, right? Then translated into Latin and later English and other languages. In the original Greek, the object pronoun is missing. Jesus doesn't say, I who speak to you am he. Jesus literally says, this is the literal translation of the Greek, I am, comma, the one who is speaking to you. I am the one who is speaking to you. I know that Messiah is coming. Jesus replies, I am. That sounds strange, right? Instead of I am he, just I am. And what kind of phrasing is that? Where have you heard that phrase before in the Bible? Anyone? Well, yeah, Moses. Moses at the burning bush. Back in Exodus, back when Moses encounters God at the burning bush and asks God what his name is, God says, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. In other words, Jesus not only identifies himself to the Samaritan woman as Messiah, but in fact, he is the I am, Yahweh himself, the God of the Old Testament. And part of the reason Jesus reveals himself this way is because the Samaritan woman was trying to distance herself from Jesus. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She traces her lineage back about eight centuries to when the Samaritans first existed, making a distinction, right? Drawing a line of conflict between Jesus, a Jew, and herself, a Samaritan. I can't be talking with you, Jesus, because you guys are supposed to hate us. But Jesus, in his reply, I am, he goes back even further. Before the split between Jew and Samaritan, about 13 centuries before, to the burning bush, to the calling of Moses, when Israel was one. And there was no division. At the burning bush, there was no distinction, no conflict between Jew or Samaritan. There was just Yahweh calling Moses to set Israel free from slavery. Right? In essence, Jesus is saying to the woman, don't see me any longer as just another Jewish man. For the one who called all of Israel, including Jews and Samaritans, into existence is standing before you right now. And this person wants to set you free from slavery to sin. But there's more. You know when God tells Moses his name is Yahweh, I am who I am? That's strange too, right? If you ask me what my name is and I said, I am, what have I told you about myself? Nothing, right? I am what? The name Yahweh begs a description. So when God tells us his name is I am, he's he's told us nothing about himself. And yet, in the very lack of description, God has actually told us everything about himself. God is saying we can't attach any adjective that fully describes who God is. God is our Savior, but he's, He isn't only that. God is our light, but He's more than that. Ultimately, God is completely transcendent, beyond our comprehension, and we can never put God in a box by trying to define who He is. God just is. He is existence itself. The entire universe resides in one small corner of His pinky. That is what He is saying in His name. Here's what it means for us. Because God's name is Yahweh, I am, because God simply is, God also is all we need him to be. The Bible, therefore, in the Old Testament, attaches adjectives to his name based on our need. That's why in the Old Testament, there are many names for God built upon the root name Yahweh. Yahweh Yireh, I am your provider. 
Yahweh Tzidkanu, I am your righteousness. Yahweh Rophe, I am your healer. And it's no mistake that Jesus, talking to the Samaritan woman, identifies himself as Yahweh, I am, because Jesus also is everything we need him to be. That's why in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements, such as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. The Gospel of John depicts Jesus as the incarnation of the invisible, all-powerful, and eternal God of the Old Testament. He does the same things that God does in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New. And just like Yahweh, Jesus is for us all we need him to be. And that begs this important question, what did this Samaritan woman need? Isn't it obvious? She needed love. She was desperately searching for love. She was literally thirsting for it. She may never have felt love from her parents or siblings or friends. Maybe she was abandoned maybe betrayed, maybe abused. Maybe her wounds, her rejections drove her into a life of sin. She had five husbands and now was living with another guy outside her marriage, trying to get the kind of love, approval, affirmation, affection she so deep but desperately desired. And when Jesus said, I am, not only was he saying, I am the Messiah, I believe he was saying, I am your true husband. You don't really need any other. I am the one who fulfills your deepest longings. I am all you need. I don't judge you or condemn you or push you away. I'm the one initiating, and I'm here to tell you I know who you are. I know every part of your past, present, and future, what you've done with your life to this point, what you're thirsting for, and though you don't know it, I am what you really need. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It's so deep. It actually makes this image richer by showing us in verse 6, that this encounter was taking place at Jacob's well. Well, back in Genesis, where did Jacob himself first meet his wife, Rachel? At a well, this well. How about Jacob's father, Isaac? Where did he meet his wife? Isaac's servant finds a wife for Isaac, Rebekah, at a well in an answer to prayer. And so it is with Jesus and the Samaritan woman and why this story takes place next to this well. And so it is with Jesus, with every one of us. It is a love story. And not in the shallow romantic Hollywood sense, in a deep and spiritual way, Jesus shows himself the true lover of our soul right? because he alone meets our deepest need for love and acceptance. That's number two. Well, if that's the case, then number three, the grace of Jesus Christ restores our souls. You know, we see in this passage that Jesus' act of grace was so strong, so beautiful and kind that the Samaritan woman was shaken to her core. Could someone really be this loving? Could someone really be this accepting, gracious, and merciful? She was so captured by Christ that not only does she believe, but she brings many from her village to see Jesus, and they believe. Now, that village is actually called Sychar in the Bible, which in Hebrew could originate from the Hebrew words for drunken or falsehood. Perhaps the Bible is saying that entire village had a reputation as a place of sin, like the Vegas of Samaria. Maybe that's why she was living there, right? Because if you were uh, in a life of sin, where's the one place you could go where you'd kind of sort of blend in and be accepted, right? The place where everyone else is similar to you. Even in that village then, the grace of Christ is at work and can save many souls. And now, my brothers and sisters, I believe Jesus says to all of us 
like he did to so many cities and villages 2,000 years ago, like to that Samaritan woman at the well, to Sychar, says to us, I am the bridegroom. You are the bride, the church. I want to hear all your concerns. I want to be all that you need me to be. And Jesus wants to comfort us today as surely as he did the Samaritan woman. He wants to meet our need to give us water that never dries out. Some of us may have been for the longest time unable to come to God, if we're honest with ourselves, to confess to him the hidden wounds, the secret thoughts, the unseen shame that we carry. But like the Samaritan woman, God knows already. Right? We might try to hide from God, but we can't. Because God sees our lives completely, as transparently as through a, a plane of glass. God knows. We can't hide. God is waiting for us to finally let down our defenses and go to him. Share with him what he already knows, our weaknesses, our anxieties, our sins, our fears, our moments of failure, dealing with our children. You know, the promotion we wanted but feel like we can't pray about because maybe having this kind of ambition is sinful. Is it? I don't know. i got to go to God. God's waiting for us to have that conversation. You know, the wounds we carry in marriage as we try to make things work with our spouse. That overbearing boss or backstabbing coworker whom we just want to, like, curse out, right? God already knows all of these things. He wants to hear us and heal us, but he loves us so much he will never force his healing upon us. He's never going to violate our will in that way. If only we would draw near to him and receive his love. And it's not like Jesus wants, to come, uh, wants us to come trembling on our knees to him, right, in adoration and prayer to a holy God sort of beyond, uh, out there. It's like the foot washing during the Last Supper. You remember that story? I'm not kneeling before him. He's kneeling before me to wash my feet. He's kneeling before me to wash the dirt from my body. And remember Peter saying, Lord, you will never wash my feet. We could never imagine God kneeling before us. That's not the God we were taught when we were growing up. We went to church, right, when we were young. We were always taught a holy and transcendent God that we come before God in obeisance and trembling and fear and awe. But in the Last Supper, Jesus, again, this is the Gospel of John, who, who is the God of the Old Testament, walking around with us in the New Testament, kneels before us. I think God does that too. In an act of humility, God comes to us in this humble way. And if I saw God, the God of the universe, kneeling before I would break my heart. Right? Like, God, don't do that. What, what are you doing? I should, be, I should be kneeling to you. You're kneeling to me. What do, you want to, what, do you, what do you want with me? And God just says, I, I want to wash you of your sins. I want to wash you of your pain. I want to wash you of your anxiety. Now, Peter says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Right? We can never imagine God doing that, but Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Jesus, uh, Peter says, don't wash only my feet, but also my head and my hands. But what does Jesus say? He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Meaning, the one who's been baptized in Christ bathed in the waters of faith, i.e. the one who's already Christian, need only to wash his feet. Meaning, the feet are the only part of our body that touches the ground, the earth, on a daily basis and gets dirty. This is the part of our spirit that engages in the world and gets wounded by the world and, and heavy laden by the world and the things of the world. And through repentance and confession for those parts of our spirit to be clean on a regular basis. Jesus washing our feet is a symbol of him wanting to cleanse us daily. Now, we don't want to expose our dirty feet to him, right? 
but He wants to do it for us. He wants to kneel before us. He wants to hear our struggles and concerns. He wants to be all we need Him to be. In exchange for our weakness and shame, Jesus wants to give us water that never dries out. The mercy of God is so great that it goes above and beyond what we deserve. You know, Augustine, that famous saint, once wrote, Though you forgive us all our debts, you deign by your promises to make yourself our debtor. For your merciful love abides forever. In other words, God not only forgives, he goes beyond that. It becomes indebted to us through his promises. He binds himself to his word so that when we pray through his word and his promises, he has to answer those prayers without changing his mind. He deigns to become indebted to us. This is the God of love that we follow. Think about Jesus, how Jesus' mercy, uh, think about Jesus' mercy in this encounter with the Samaritan woman. Even as he was working to save her soul, right? Our passage says in verse 6 that Jesus himself was weary, so tired from all the work that he'd been doing, from all the walking and healing and preaching and teaching and more walking. And they didn't have cars back then, right? He walked everywhere. One guy actually tried to calculate how much Jesus walked in his lifetime, in his ministry lifetime, based on which cities he'd visited, and estimated that during his three years of public ministry, Jesus walked about 3,125 miles. That's an average of three, uh, 3.3 miles per day, not counting Sabbaths. Now, if the average walking speed is about three miles an hour, then Jesus spent an hour of his life almost every day just walking back and forth from one city to another, right? Some of us may have, I don't know, an hour's commute to work each day. Now, imagine you had to walk for that long to work, right? There and back every day. And then you throw in all the healing and teaching he did, followed by throngs of people, numbering in the thousands, endlessly clamoring for his attention, having also to watch out for the Pharisees and other leaders who want to kill him. I mean, Jesus is tired. In fact, the word for weary in this passage, in the Greek, it comes from a root word that means beating. He's beat. He's like a drum taking a beating from all his work, and it's gotten him incredibly thirsty, and now he finds himself next to this well. But for all his weariness, it did not stop him from engaging a complete stranger and saving her soul. And remember, the, the Bible story doesn't say she actually gave him water. She just left, and he's, she, he's still thirsty. Right? That's grace. That's grace. Seeing this grace of God, why will we hesitate to draw near to Christ and surrender? A confession. Why would we hesitate to sit with Christ and know the fullness of his grace? Because I guarantee you guys, there is no other place on earth that we're going to find this kind of grace from no one else. Right? There's no other safe place where we're going to experience such understanding and acceptance. You know, every other person in the world has expectations of us to various degrees. Their love is conditional. Our employers, and we get fired if we don't do a good job. Our professors grading our exams and papers, our friends, you know, we know what it feels like to be let down by others, right? Our friends, and be let down or betrayed. I speak with newlyweds who talk about how difficult their own weddings were, how their own families or friends made it about them when it's supposed to be about the couple and their wedding, right? Friends get broken up for that. Why couldn't they just be happy for us? Our spouses, sometimes their expectations upon us are the highest because spouses fall into the trap of expecting the other person to fulfill them when only Christ can. Only Christ can do that. Our parents, whom we can't seem to please, our grades aren't good enough, why aren't we getting married, why are we gaining too much weight, even our siblings, right? 
whom we either have to take care of because they keep messing up, or we feel like we're just not as good as them in our parents' eyes. All conditional love. But the love of Christ, unconditional, full of grace. We all know the story of the prodigal son. The father in the story welcomed the son back with open arms, even though he wasted his life. One writer, Frank Johnston, actually wrote, Do you know what the word prodigal means? For many years, I did not know the definition of prodigal. I always thought it referred to someone who had gone away or separated themselves from someone else. But that's not what the word means at all. The word prodigal means lavish, extravagant, and unrestrained. Then who in the story is prodigal? Who in the story is lavish? Who in the story is uh, unrestrained? It is the father who is prodigal. It is the father who is lavish, lavish in his love for his sons. It is the father who is extravagant. It is the father who is unrestrained. It is the father who is prodigal. This is not the parable of the prodigal, God, uh, prodigal son. It is the parable of the prodigal God. Do you need to be rooted again in his grace to know your identity as a child of God, that you are saved entirely by his grace, and he wanted to, and he loved to do it? And he was so bent on doing it that he doesn't judge you. And instead, he desires you to be filled with his love and grace and peace and receive forgiveness. No matter what we've done with our lives, no matter what's happened to our lives until now, God desires to comfort us, renew and strengthen us, and give us that living water that overflows. Jesus wants to encounter us tonight at the well. Don't feel ashamed to come. Tell the Lord what's going on in your life. The Samaritan woman discovered that Jesus already knew everything about her. We may think we have feelings to, things to feel ashamed about. Jesus already knows. He knows your concerns. So like the Samaritan woman tonight, let's enter t- into a time of prayer and just lift up those concerns to the Lord. Can we pray today?